Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show. It's our annual rundown of the overrated, the underrated, and the ugly, which means I am joined, as always, for this very special annual episode by JB. You used to be able to get a pickle for a nickel. A nickel! I have no response for that. As was intended. <laughs> uh, this is certainly the weirdest movie year since we started uh, F This Movie back in 2010. Yes, it is. Which I'm sure will be reflected in our choices for this special episode. Um, and something we'll talk about next week when we do our rundown of our 10 favorite movies of the year with Adam Risky. Something we talked about on our summer episode. Every time we do one of these sort of year retrospectives, we end up talking about, well, what a weird year this was. And weird, by weird, I mean bad. Not for movies, just bad in general. Previously, we didn't know what weird was. Every other year when we said weird, ha! (laughs) The the fates laughed at us when we said weird. Because just you three boys wait till 2020. Yeah. I'll show you weird. Weird? Hold my beard. (laughs) Um, Let's get into it. Uh, We usually start with our picks for underrated, yes? Because we like to start with the good movies. Uh, My underrated this year are kind of weird because I feel like in the past, my choices for underrated are have been more in the literal sense of the word, which is these movies came out, they were reviewed, critics didn't like them as much as I did, whereas this year it's more like I don't think people saw these movies and I would like to point them in the direction of these movies. And I think my list is very much that, and the people who did see them did not talk about them or recommend them or champion them. I was surprised at the level of discussion around these films, which was little to none. Okay. Um, So you should go first, Jay Bones, and uh, give us your first underrated pick. My first underrated film, and obviously all these underrated films are ones that I think our listeners should seek out, is uh, An American Pickle, the Seth Rogen vehicle that I went into with very low expectations, but it's kind of wonderful. And small and very funny and doesn't suffer from that other Seth Rogen phenomenon where about halfway through it sort of runs out of steam. I'm looking at you, Sausage Party. (laughs) Um, I really liked it. It had a bunch of things to say about the immigrant experience. I don't think it was hit you over the head obvious and uh, a nice little mean streak in the middle of it. It was really, really good. I was unable to see an American Pickle for many months because we were not subscribed to HBO Max because there was no way to watch HBO Max on our TV. Uh, We have now subscribed to it, mostly so that we could see Wonder Woman and all of the Warner Brothers movies that are going to hit the service next year. Um, And we upgraded to an Amazon Fire Stick, and then a week later they announced that uh, HBO Max would be available on a Roku, which is what I previously had, so there was no need for me to upgrade to an Amazon Fire Stick. But I'm very happy with HBO Max. There's a ton of stuff on there, and I'm looking forward to finally watching An American Pickle. Isn't HBO Max great? Between HBO Max and... 
Peacock, it's incredible. All the Looney Tunes, the the sub channel that's curated by TCM, it's an embarrassment of riches. And it's also really funny that the minute Warner Brothers made their earth-shaking announcement, suddenly the HBO Max Roku thing worked itself out. Yeah, right. Coenzy Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's pricey, which is my complaint about HBO Max, but there's a lot of stuff on there. Well, here I have to plead ignorance because it's like accidentally I got all these streaming services because I think late at night when I'm drunk, I sign up for them. So I forget that I'm actually paying because they come in the middle and take the money out of your credit card. Right. I think I get HBO Max for free because I subscribe to HBO on Comcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's very possible that... We have AT&T and it doesn't offer that. So we just canceled our regular HBO subscription and switched it over to HBO Max. So my guess is it's kind of a wash in terms of what we're spending. It'll it'll level out. I know I pay the extra five bucks to get Peacock because then there's no commercials and there's more offerings. Right, right. There's a different level. I'm very anxious uh, to hear what you think of an American pickle when you see it. I will check it out. Um, these last few weeks have been a mad frenzy of trying to catch up on 2020 releases between voting for the Chicago Film Critics Awards and trying to make my own top 10 list. It's been, uh, I've been seeing a lot of stuff. Um, the Chicago Film Critic Awards were really interesting because um, you guys did it virtually this year. And as the winners were announced, someone posted them to Twitter. Yeah. So I was on the Twitter machine that night, and I I almost kind of felt like I was there. <laughs> it was great. Every so often, a new one would come up, and I would like, oh, that's another winner. It was fun. It was neat that we did it over Zoom because it actually gave the opportunity for some of the award recipients to appear. Yeah. Which was very cool. Um, my first pick is a movie that we just talked about before I pressed record here, and it's a movie I just saw last night. So it's very, very fresh. Uh, and that is Paul Greengrass's News of the World, which is a Western starring Tom Hanks. And I have to admit, uh, I love Westerns and I love Tom Hanks. So if you put that chocolate and peanut butter together, I'm probably going to like it. It's not a great movie, but it is a good movie. Uh, And I have seen very little about it. Uh, Part of that is my own social media blackout. Part of that is I think people just aren't really talking about it. The one tweet I saw about it was somebody referring to it as the year's best Ron Howard movie. And they meant that in a derogatory way. Which I understand because Ron Howard has certainly lost a step or two, but I would argue that when Ron Howard was firing on all cylinders, he was making really good movies. And Yes, I agree. And and if if this is in that category, then I don't see that as an insult. Um, I think it has a lot to say about decency, about doing the right thing, <clears throat> um, about spreading information... There's a whole sequence that couldn't be more relevant where he gets to a town and there's a the premise is he goes around and reads the newspaper to these various towns around the South yeah, post-Civil like War. right? Uh, and he 
finds this girl who was raised by uh, indigenous people and her tribe has been wiped out. And so he kind of takes her on. Um, but there's a sequence where he's in a town where the guy who runs the town is essentially saying, no, you read the news I want you to read. And that could not be more relevant in 2020 uh, because he's obviously pushing back against that uh, in terms of what is real news and what is fake news. I'll just say that. Um, but it's uh, it's a Western, so it's very beautifully shot. Paul Greengrass you know, holds back on his shaky cam. I haven't really liked a Paul Greengrass movie in a number of years, so it was nice to find one that I liked. And it's it's cool to see Tom Hanks complete his transformation into Jimmy Stewart by making a Western. Every clip I've seen has me salivating for this one. If you live outside the United States, you can watch it right now on Netflix. If you live inside the United States, I think about halfway through January, it's going to be available uh, pay-per-view on the cable system. Oh, that's good. I didn't know that. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait. There was a, I got, preemptively excited because i thought it was going to be available on netflix here on christmas day and that is not the case but um that one's definitely on my list now is that the film he was making when he when he got covid i don't know for sure because it was filmed in australia right i would assume so and he was in australia when he got it right so yeah that a lot of people are making that connection but i don't i can't I can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah, me either. Um, One thing I discovered this year is that even though it's still a problem that a lot of documentaries don't make it into actual movie theaters, this year, because movie theaters were right out, (laughs) uh, I wound up watching a lot more documentaries because obviously there's, um, it's much more financially advantageous to just release them to streaming services and pay-per-view um my next underrated film is the documentary class action park yes i will have more to say about that movie next week which is uh which very nearly made my top 10 list (laughs) in that it is the film that made me wince the most as i watched it i i had a physical reaction to what was going on on the screen and specifically to a bunch of stories that former employees tell. The one about the teeth is the most memorable. Actually, I found the one I kept going back to was that spray they would use. Oh, yeah. You would stand in a circle. They would (laughs) spray you down with some sort of iodine solution. (laughs) And it would make the person start dancing. And no one could just stay still. When they were being sprayed, we're laughing, but it's certainly not funny. Uh, Class Action Park is a documentary about a real water park that once existed in Jersey called Action Park, where things got a little out of hand back before there were regulations and people were so litigious. It's a great documentary. It's very, very entertaining. It turns very sad you know it's not all fun and games through the whole movie but uh i really really loved it and the makers of class action park do something where i love when documentarians do this because not all of them do they withhold things so that as the film goes along it's a constant series of small revelations 
Yeah, well, that's you know, this that's narrative structure. That's exactly. But a lot of document, <laughs> a lot of documentaries. It seems to me, either blow all the good stuff in the first ten minutes, or at the very least in the first half. Right. And then there's not too many places to go. But good lord, um, Class Action Park is the rare film this year that I wish had been longer. Yeah, I wonder if it'll ever get a like a home video release where there will be maybe deleted scenes and interviews because I could listen to like Chris Gethard talk, tell stories about going to Class Action Park or Action Park uh, for hours and hours because every time he talked, it was very funny. That should be its own podcast. <laughs> um, my next underrated pick is another Western. This one, a horror Western. And I picked it because there just are not enough horror westerns in the world. It is a movie called The Pale Door, directed by Aaron B. Kuntz, who directed some of Scare Package, which was an anthology that came out last year that got a lot of attention. Um, He did kind of the wraparound and the big segment at the end with Joe Bob Briggs. But he directed another feature called The Pale Door, uh, which is sort of... From Dusk Till Dawn, only it's witches instead of vampires. There's a, a group of ne'er-do-wells who uh, shack up in a brothel that turns out to be populated by witches. And, Ooh. yeah. Um, again. This not- sounds right up my alley. My mother was a witch. Oh, well, then uh, my mother uh, ran a brothel. So, actually, this is autobiographical for both of us. What are the odds? <laughs> Um, again, not great, but very good and, uh, not talked about very much. I feel like even on horror Twitter, the movie got kind of ignored and when it was talked about, it was in sort of a dismissive way. Maybe it just didn't hit for a lot of people. It hit for me again, because I'm just a fan of Western aesthetics. And so when you lay a horror movie on top of that, it's like, Hey, I couldn't be happier. Uh, great cast, including Pat Healy and Melora Walters and Noah oh, Segan. Wow. Yeah. Um, really fun stuff. And uh, I would argue works as both a Western and as a horror movie. Probably a little better at one than the other, but I think it works as both. This year, as I just cast about and I was sort of watching things, on different streaming platforms. Um, occasionally, Pat Healy would show up in a supporting performance. Sure. And I would catch one of his supporting performances that I hadn't seen before, and he's just great. In fact, one year of flashback, I believe I talked to him briefly. Probably. He was one of the guests. Yeah. On what platform did you see Paldor? So I Remember? saw it when it was a, a screener before its VOD release, but it did just get released on Shutter maybe a week oh, or two okay. ago. So it is it's available to watch now. That's good because that one definitely makes my list. Um, last night, casting about and channel surfing, because did you ever get in this mode where you watch a movie? And then immediately afterwards, you're not quite in the mood to watch a movie. So then you sort of channel surf and you wind up watching another movie. <laughs> this does not happen to me, but I can understand the phenomenon. Um, I wound up watching True Grit again last night. And uh, I hadn't seen it in a really, really long time. The original God, or the that... remake? 
Oh, I'm sorry. The Jeff Bridges uh, Coen Brothers version. That movie rules. That was like the first thing I watched when we got HBO Max. I own the Blu-ray, but I was like, look, here it is on HBO Max. And that was the first movie I watched. Right, because it's on HBO this month. And I will say this, and this is a tangent, but it really isn't. Because there is no new product, HBO and Showtime in prime time have been showing excellent older movies. Nice. And because they're not the new thing that they're pushing because they just spent oxtine million for the rights, they're actually sort of curating it and saying, hey, this movie's really good. Let's show it at 8 o'clock. Um, so I really appreciate them throwing True Grit on because um, in the spirit of raising Arizona, the Coen brothers' um, adaptation of the book and by that, I mean the way all the people talk mm-hmm. is incredible. Yeah. it's uh... That alone is reason to see the film. And then there's five other reasons, including, is that just an early Josh Brolin performance for the Coens, or is that an early Josh Brolin performance? Oh, no. I mean, Josh Brolin has been around since the early 80s. Um... Right, the, the Goonies, but he and he, he, had, well... he had done, well, like... 2007-ish is when he makes No Country for Old Men, and that's kind of when he starts his respectable run. And True Grit is about three years after that. Okay, then I have the chronology wrong, because what I think I'm responding to is there's a real sort of rawness and almost studied amateurishness to his portrayal of that character in True Grit, where it comes across... (laughs) as someone who hasn't been acting very long. Okay. But it it's what I'm what I'm realizing that's part of his performance that he's just this unformed wild awful man. <laughs> I I think partly because it was such a commercial hit and partly because the Coen brothers make it look so easy on that movie, it doesn't get talked about in terms of their great movies. But it certainly belongs as part of that conversation. Yeah, even the Matt Damon performance, and I like Matt Damon, is is elevated in that one. Yeah. He's really, really good. Yeah. My next underrated film, which I just caught because it, it barely squeaked out in 2020, is the new uh, Kate Winslet vehicle, Ammonite. Now, I'm warning everyone, <laughs> this one's slow, but it is very rewarding because like the best dramas it's about a whole bunch of things and it's about a whole bunch of things in the way that it is about them it's the story of a real life woman who did groundbreaking uh what would you call it when you find dinosaur bones archaeology paleontology paleontology she did groundbreaking paleontology work in england and uh, fought for every penny and lived a very meager life. And men were loath to give her credit, and lots of men took credit for her discoveries. But she was the real deal. And obviously it's about a bunch of other things that I don't want to give away, but it is a delightful little film that will reward your viewing. You liked it more than me. I did not know that you saw it. <laughs> I did. Was it, was it the was it the slowness that got to you, or the 
the sort of precious art house quality. It, I mean, it's it's studied bleakness. <laughs> I found it very familiar. Maybe having just seen a very similar movie a year prior that was uh, a, a heavy awards contender. Um, good performances and certainly well done. Not a bad movie by any stretch. I just, as I watched it, I felt like, hey, I just saw this movie, only it was called something else. And I won't say what it was called because I guess that would spoil some things that you're trying to talk around. Yes, and I, I don't want to give it away. And I was sort of applauding the filmmakers for not exploiting certain angles to sell the film that they could have easily. Um, If anything, I really liked it because it's the next in a long list of films that show you exactly how awful it was in the past. (laughs) And Kate Um, Winslet is always incredible, you know. And my guess is uh, next week, at some point, we will discuss the film First Cow. Uh, First Cow does this as well. Boy, the past was the worst. <laughs> How did anyone get to be older than 10 150 years ago and before? How, how on earth did anyone survive the world? That's my only memory of the movie The Revenant. I remember oh, we yeah. watched we watched that I think down in my basement and my yes. only memory of the whole movie is how did anyone live It we should we should start we should start a whole new genre and call it spectacularly unpleasant <laughs> historical drama Um all right my next pick uh, all of mine are pretty Heavy on genre or, or genre adjacent. Um, my next pick is a movie called Alone, which I saw. Oh, yeah. I remember your review. Yeah, I can't remember what I saw. I think as part of Fantastic Fest, right? Fantasia Fest. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't cover Fantastic Fest. Fantasia Fest out of Canada, um, and this is the new movie by John Hyams, son of Peter Hyams, and I'm a big John Hyams fan from his work uh, in two direct-to-video action movies. They were both Universal Soldier sequels. One was Universal Soldier Regeneration, and one was Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which is like a DTV action movie by way of Art House. Um, Alone is a very stripped-down, straightforward thriller about a woman who's being stalked and sort of chased by uh, uh, an evil man. And that's it. That's the premise, and then the movie just kind of lets it rip. And it's so well-directed and so tense that it elevates a very sort of basic, familiar premise. Uh, Really good performances, but it's really the direction uh, that elevates the movie and I think is very very worthwhile it kind of came and went it was you know available on vod and that's part of the problem with the way things were released this year is we didn't know what came out when it came out how we could see it what the window was right so everything just became this sort of nebulous availability and people didn't know what they should seek out and what they could ignore and if it wasn't available on one of the main streaming services, people weren't necessarily seeing it because they weren't spending the money to rent something on VOD because there's 10 things to watch on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Um, 
I think you can rent a loan for like five or six bucks. I promise it is worth the money. So it's not on Shutter yet? I don't believe so. I will look it up as we're talking about it. But no, I okay. don't think so. Something made me think that. Uh, the story I will tell post-2020, and please note, I've already augmented the story with fiction and nonsense to <laughs> make it more, more entertaining. But the story I will tell is when our very own Adam Thoss paid $150 to show his children Scoob, and the next day it was available for free. Yeah. Now, that didn't happen. No. But that's the story I'm going to tell. That's, <laughs> that was a phenomenon of 2020. You, had a, you were always in a state. Am I paying for something that's going to be free tomorrow? <laughs> Um, alone is not yet on shutter. I will have more to say about Scoob in a little bit. Oh, okay. Because of course I have not seen Scoob because I read Adam Thoughts's review <laughs> on F this movie. Yeah. He took the 150 to wait. I think it was $185. Uh, I believe it gets more expensive every time. Okay, my memory is he had to mortgage his house <laughs> to show this damn thing, to show this misbegotten thing to his children. Uh, my next underrated film, and this one makes me really sad because I think in a different year, this one would have gotten a lot more attention. I, I hope it would. What do I know? Uh, it's a film that wound up premiering on HBO and it's called Bad Education mm -hmm. with Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. And I don't think it's just because I used to be a teacher, because I think it's about a lot more than local school politics. But this is a brilliant film, a brilliant satire, um, and a really wonderful film about something that happened in real life uh, that the uh, financial officer and the superintendent of a school district uh, wound up embezzling something like 10 or 20 million dollars yeah it was a crazy amount of money and you've seen it yeah am i um am i singing its praises for no good reason not for no good reason again i think you feel more strongly about it than i do but that's the that's the beauty of this show is that uh we we have our little movie crushes and this is where we get to talk about them I think it was really good in a lot of different ways. Uh, chief among them, between Bad Education and The Irishman, who knew that Ray Romano <laughs> was such a great actor? What's uh, the, the big party, the big sick also? Yeah. The oh very oh very very much. Um, and I would argue Irishman, Bad Education, Big Sick, three very different guys. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, here's his supporting actor turn. Um, in Bad Education, uh, Ray Romano plays a local real estate agent who's also on the school board and notices that as the schools in his neighborhood get ranked higher and higher, the houses start going for more and more money. So that wouldn't be a conflict of interest <laughs> to be on the school board and a local real estate agent right that's not a that's not a conflict of interest right is it i thought it was really interesting um 
and again, probably because this is how it happened, not necessarily something that the movie was taking creative license with, the way that Allison Janney gets sold out. Yeah, definitely. And I really love the scene because it describes so much about morality in 2020 and maybe in the last four years, that when the situation comes to light, it's very clear what needs to be done. And the Hugh Jackman character convinces everyone not to do it. Yeah. That that sequence is just amazing. Yeah. He's really good in the movie too. It, yeah. Uh, it was good. I, I'm struggling to remember a lot of it because I feel like we watched it pretty early in the year. Yeah, and I think I got to it late. The whole subplot of the disinterested, tragically hip schoolgirl doing this puff piece for the school newspaper and actually discovering what's going on and saying, this looks interesting. And then there's a scene which I really love, which uh, in which her father, who's out of work, sits down and helps her start sifting through receipts and contracts. Mm -hmm. And it's just, an amazing scene because the father was in the financial sector and understands business. And the father is just like, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Um, It's a great scene. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen bad education, please seek it out. And that's on HBO, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, My next pick is available on Netflix. It is a French action film called lost bullet directed by Guillaume Pierre, uh, and it is about this sort of brilliant mechanic who gets picked up and arrested by the cops, and they put him to work, uh, reinforcing their cop cars and creating all sorts of crazy cool technology for them. He's like, he's like if Q worked for Mad Max, basically, just like finding shit to do with cars that you can't physically actually do in terms of reinforcing them with armor and stuff, making them go crazy fast. And is it set now or is it like science fiction? No, it's set now. Um, and, uh, and then he witnesses, uh, a murder and is implicated in the murder basically because, uh, it's done by some dirty cops. And so they say, well, obviously it was him. He's a criminal and he needs to recover the bullet which is inside a car. Uh, the bullet that killed somebody uh, is inside a car and he has to recover it. And that's the whole movie. Again, very straightforward premise, but very clever. Uh, really good action. A handful of amazing set pieces. There's a fight in a police station that's really, really great. There's a couple driving sequences that are unbelievable. It runs like 90 minutes or less. Um, really, really solid action movie in a year that I think was maybe devoid of really great action movies. This was certainly among the best. Yeah, there were fewer than we're used to getting. And I have not seen Lost Bullet yet, but I just added it to my list. Yeah, it's on Netflix. I think it premiered on Netflix. So, again, uh, my it, next... it's, it's, it's uh, not to repeat myself, but it's a victim of like, I didn't know this movie existed because content is just dumped on streaming services at yeah. such a constant clip that we don't know. So that's why shows like this are good because we'll watch the crap for you. 
I was going to say, what we need is more curation. Right. We need curators, like the fine men and women of F This Movie. Yes. My next underrated film, I approached with great trepidation because I thought originally that it was going to be either Indie Twee or a Star's Vanity Project. Hmm. And what I got was very, very different, and I'm so impressed by this film. It is called Horse Girl. Ah, yes. And say what you want, very cleverly put together, very great performances. Paul Reiser has one scene that's Hmm. just, wow, um, in terms of suggesting things that aren't spoken out loud. And I compare The Horse Girl to a film that you and I used to use as a touchstone. I compare Horse Girl to The Rapture, uh, the Mimi Rogers film about the end of the world. Say what you want. It goes there. (laughs) I'm watching Horse Girl, and I think, okay, this is a film about a young lady's slow descent into madness. But then the film begins to say, is it? Is it? Is it? (laughs) And I really gave it credit for that. And um, I think as we've discussed before, it's very easy for a film to say yes or no. And much more difficult for a film to say, maybe? Mm. And I thought Horse Girl said maybe. Yeah. I avoided Horse Girl for most of the year because... Why, why is that? Because I thought it was a movie about Alison Brie being locked up in a psych ward. And it's not. There no. is a sequence where she is in a psych ward. But it's a very small part of the movie, and the movie yeah. is actually something very, very different. So I was very pleasantly surprised when we finally watched it like two weeks ago uh, that it is not at all the movie that I thought it was going to be. And I really enjoyed it. I think – I don't want to speak for him, but I'm thinking Adam Risky is going to have more to say about Horse Girl next week. Okay. Um, there's a scene where her roommate and the roommate's boyfriend come home. And Alison Brie is very busy doing some things that I thought is presenting a situation that we've seen in a lot of other movies, but in a different way. Um, I also thought her first full-length date with Darren, when it's obvious that Darren kind of likes her, was was really, really well done. Yeah. And as I pointed out in my column yesterday... The scene where two characters, actually four characters, talk about the concept of a baker's dozen, <laughs> which was one of the one of the funniest scenes I've seen all year. Alison Brie, I think Jan and I may may have run that back and watched it again <laughs> because it's on par with this goes up to eleven right. from Spinal Tap. It's so great. Alison Brie had a big year between Horse Girl, which she not only stars in, but co-wrote. Yes. Um, And you were a fan of this director's last movie, right? The Little Hours? Oh, very much. Um, But she's got memorable roles in Happiest Season and in Promising Young Woman as well. So she had a big, big 2020. And Promising Young Woman is in that same limbo as News of the World. Right. Where I just assumed I could stream it or rent it. Right can't yet yeah i will forever be conflicted about promising young woman um 
All right, my last underrated pick is another movie that really just came out a week or two ago. It's available to stream on VOD now, or available to rent on VOD, I should say, and that is a movie called Hunter Hunter, Hmm. um, which I will say, we rented it on Amazon. It's written and directed by a guy named Sean Linden. We rented it on Amazon. I will encourage you to rent it on Amazon, but do not read Amazon's plot summary because Uh it gives a lot away because this is the kind of movie that takes most of its runtime to really come into focus in terms of what it's actually about, which isn't to say that the first hour is padding because it's always very gripping and tense, but it takes a long time to reveal what its end game is. Um, but it stars Devin Sawa as the father of a teenage preteen daughter. The two of them and, and uh, the mom, his wife live in the woods in the wilderness and kind of make their living hunting and bringing furs and animals in to sell. Um, and then they start to become very aware that there's something hunting them, which they believe to be as a wolf. Um, And it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. And I don't want to say any more except to say that the last five minutes of Hunter Hunter are the best movie of the year. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's. I remember I read a review somewhere that made me really want to see it. Yeah. And then because we have so many choices this year, it quickly fell off my radar because uh, I don't know. There's too because much. Because Wonder Woman's coming out on Christmas. <laughs> um, really good. Really good role for Devin Sawa. Really good role for Nick Stahl, another young actor who kind of disappeared for a long time. Yeah, he shows up in the I movie. Remember. Um, I think maybe he had like some battles with addiction and there were weird I, stories. I, I believe he did. Yeah, but he is back and shows up in the movie and it's good to see him. Um, but yeah, some of the most... The, the biggest holy shit moment of the year, I think. Okay, it's Hunter, going on Hunter. my list. Yeah, and I have a bonus underrated film. Yay! Because it's not for everyone. If you're planning to watch the current war, which I was uh, excitedly recommending at the beginning of the year, because that was just dumped. Um, I mean, come on, Scorsese produced it. <laughs> uh, the current war, which is about the battle between Edison and Westinghouse for what electrical system. <laughs> the country would use sound exciting. Uh, this is a companion piece to the current war because it covers a lot of the same territory. The film is called Tesla and it stars Ethan Hawke and it's very strange and it's not for everyone. It certainly covers the same ground as the current war, but in a very different way and about three quarters of the way through the movie, something amazing happens which is one of my favorite movie moments of the year, and I won't spoil it. Um, I think for most of our listeners, they would enjoy it, but I'm strongly cautioning it's not for everyone. It's called Tesla. All right. I haven't seen that one. 
if you're at all into science, um, at the end of his life, Tesla was investigating how to broadcast electricity without wires. Think about that for a second. Yeah. Um, it's kind of amazing, although the film um, suggests a whole bunch of reasons why that may or may not have been possible. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it. All right. Cool. Uh, with so that, now, yeah, we move into like, the... If you don't like when people shit on things, <laughs> just um, turn off the podcast right now. Just turn it off. You've got 11 recommendations for stuff that you should see. 11 films that will keep you busy until you get your vaccine. Yeah. Uh, because now we're going to talk about movies that we feel like maybe got more credit than they deserved, or I like to call this the I don't get it category, which isn't to say, hey, you're wrong for liking this. It's to say, everybody seemed to like this, and I don't get it. Yes, although in the case of my number one I don't get it film, I think I do get it. I understand why people like it. Okay. I can't think of another film I was more looking forward to this year than Mank. <laughs> That's on my list, too. And I've been actually this, dying to hear your thoughts on this. More than anybody well, else, I want to hear what you think of Mank. Right. And I appreciate that, and I take it as the compliment that it is. Yes. But let's face it. If Mank is up anyone's alley... It's up mine. Yeah. Mank was made for me. <laughs> and I hated it. Hated, <laughs> hated, hated it. Hated every minute of it, with one exception. Amanda Seyfried is delightful as Marion Davies. It's that's a wonderful performance. It's buried in the middle of a potato. <laughs> so like Mank. You know the film I compare Mank to? The Artist. Oh, The Artist is a better movie. Do you know how... The Artist is a pleasant trifle that didn't maybe deserve all of the awards recognition that it received, but if you just stumbled across The Artist and saw it, you'd say, that was cute, and that would be the extent well, of it. Like, cute is enough. Well, I, I, I didn't. Oh. I thought, I thought The Artist while maybe not as egregious as Mank, was doing the same thing. Do you know how some people might watch QVC or the Food Network? Because, oh, I don't know, maybe they have an eating problem, and we might call those two television stations food porn? Sure. Mank is movie porn. <laughs> yes. It's fan fiction. Uh... Quite literally fan fiction. In this case, the fan is what's-his-name's father who wrote the script. And it's this long, empty spectacle that's trying its damnness to do this and failing. And I'll give you an example of where the whole thing fell apart for me. There is a scene where Mank, Herman Mankiewicz, you'll notice that his nephew or great-nephew, Ben Mankiewicz, has been very quiet about this movie. I have a weird feeling he didn't like it either. Um, there's a scene in Mank where Herman Mankiewicz, a brilliant screenwriter in the 30s, um, goes to see Irving Thalberg, the boy wonder who was running MGM. 
and he's made to wait because Thalberg made everyone wait. And when Mank, Gary Oldman, walks into the office, he smells something peculiar. Thalberg says something like, that's the last time I ever make those boys wait again. And then the scene continues. And I'm sitting there saying, well, that's the oddest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Because I know what they're talking about. The film is winkety winking at you and saying, you know, you know, you know. So let me get this straight. You are appealing to the one person in a thousand, the one person in 10,000 who knows the original story. And then I'm going to get pleasure from the fact that you name checked it (laughs) instead of showing it to me. What is the story? Here's, Here's what you missed. Here's the scene that would have been in a superior film. (laughs) Marx Brothers made five movies at Paramount that are among the greatest comedies ever made, and then they got fired because they didn't make any money. And Irving Thalberg, who knew what he was doing, said to the Marx Brothers, I bet I can make a movie with you that's half as funny but twice as successful. So the Marx Brothers go to work at MGM, And because Thalberg made everyone wait, Thalberg made the Marx Brothers wait one day. But because they were the Marx Brothers, the Marx Brothers were waiting inside of Thalberg's empty office. And they didn't like being made to wait. And apparently Thalberg made them wait for more than an hour. So what the Marx Brothers did, this is true, is they made a fire in the middle of the office. They made a campfire... They sent Harpo to the commissary for some potatoes, and they took off all their clothes. So when Thalberg returns to his office, the Marx Brothers are naked, sitting around a campfire in the middle of his office, roasting potatoes. Got it. And Thalberg never made them wait again. Now, that's a funny story, and that should have been in the movie, but... Why would you just have a character walk in? Hey, were the Marx Brothers just roasting potatoes in here? <laughs> what gives? It's just... Well, they'd have to say the name, too, because everybody says each other's names in this movie. What gives, Irving Thalberg? Oh, God. <laughs> what gives, um, Louis B? As as someone on Twitter, and I wish I had written it down, because uh, it was it was a, a big laugh in a year that was devoid of big laughs, that the film bends over backwards to have this washed-out black-and-white cinematography, I'm guessing to recall the 40s, and then the film is in widescreen, because why not? Because everyone wants their big-screen TVs filled, right. but that effectively kicks right. the period uh, uh, genuineness in the groin. Um. Gary Oldman is an actor who is very talented, um, but he is too old and the wrong physical type to play Herman Mankiewicz. Okay. If you wanted to pick someone with acting chops who is famous, who could actually pull off Herman Mankiewicz, it's George Clooney. Wouldn't he also be too old? The two of them sort of resemble each other. See, that's the problem. And I don't want to say you can't play older than you are or younger than you are. I don't want to get into that. But um, 
Clooney has more of a resemblance. Oldman just comes across as this doughy, dissipated alcoholic, which is um, he he looks a lot like he did in the the Churchill movie, but less like Churchill. <laughs> I didn't like any of Mank either. Uh, I didn't even like the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which I felt was uh redundant and used throughout the movie <laughs> the whole movie has this same noise underneath it which is fascinating because they also did the score for soul which just came yes. out and that score is amazing it's terrific yeah although there's there's a contribution to that by jean paul baptiste yes so that might push it in that area um someone uh wrote a review who also was not a fan of the film like ours, like us rather, and said something like, will this alcoholic finish this script by the deadline lying in bed? I don't care. (laughs) Also, if you want to get historical, the film is largely based on Pauline Kael's essay, Raising Cain, where she said Herman Wankiewicz, (laughs) deserved a majority of the credit for for Citizen Kane, not Orson Welles. And that essay made Pauline Kael's reputation, and, and because her books keep getting printed, it's never been out of print. Friend of Orson Welles, Peter Bogdanovich, later published a point-by-point refutation of everything Pauline Kael said in that essay. Now, I don't want to get I don't want to wade into these waters, but the point that Mank is making might not be what happened. Right. Bogdanovich doesn't think so. And this is also based on, um, who's the guy who was the film critic at the Chicago Reader forever? Jonathan Rosenbaum? Yeah. Rosenbaum wrote a book called This is Orson Welles, based on about 10 hours of interviews he did with Welles. And that book, too, strongly disagrees with Manx's version of events. It's a bad script, and I know that it's written by David Fincher's father, and so yes. I understand his desire to see it realized and brought to the screen, but maybe it shouldn't have been made, or maybe it should have been reworked by a different screenwriter. Um, it, it defines fan fiction. It's And the reason I put it on my overrated list, I didn't even see that many accolades for it, honestly. Uh, the reason I put it on my list is the same reason that I put any movie on my overrated list this year, which is all, my, I have three overrated, you know, in quotes, titles, and they're all Netflix movies, and they're all sort of high-profile uh, filmmakers, movies I was excited about. And so it was like, oh, the new David Fincher movie is going to appear on Netflix. I remember early in the year... Netflix announced their slate and it was like, we have movies from these filmmakers and I couldn't believe who was making movies for Netflix. And with maybe one exception, I was disappointed by all of them. And I think I know what the exception is. Um, Again, Mank was made for me. I know the Marx Brothers potato story and I hated it. (laughs) It's Hitchcock all over again. Oh, remember that podcast? Yes, I do. (laughs) That movie got me in a lather. (laughs) 
Um, what's your next overrated pick? Because mine was Mank as well. Um, there is a new documentary about John Belushi called Belushi. Ah, yes. Which premiered on Showtime. I wrote a column about it. Um, as much as I appreciate the fact that this film was given the blessing of the family, and so they got to use his letters and diaries, which are amazing. And Bill Hader does an amazing job narrating them. Uh, it's nothing we haven't seen before. It's a fancy behind the music. He spirals out of control. There's nothing we can do. And then this happened. And then this happened. And then this happened. And at no point is it discussed what his unique genius was. No. Because I believe that Belushi was a comic genius within the realm of what he did when he was alive. And I'm waiting for that film to talk about why he was so funny and how he was so funny and where did that come from. Right. Um, so I was very disappointed. I saw a handful of documentaries this year that I would characterize as these talking head documentaries where it's the same six people saying things. In some cases, they're saying they're giving incorrect information, but it's like the entire documentary is just six people being interviewed and it's kind of pasted together with maybe clips from movies or something. Um, and I don't like those documentaries. And yet Belushi made me miss talking heads because the whole because thing is constructed out of just audio recordings of, as you pointed out, I think in your column interviews that are over a decade old and were never meant to be part of a film, right? It was for a book, right? So the audio quality is abysmal. <coughs> sometimes they sound like phone calls, and then the, the film sometimes uses animation, Ugh. which <laughs> um, could work if it was done differently. But the the trope of the little boy inside the man. I mean, haven't we moved beyond that? for any serious discussion of anything. I liked seeing some of the old clips of him working. Sure. But I was not a fan of the documentary. Um, his SNL audition, which you can watch on YouTube, is still kind of amazing. Um, what I like is, and I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but watching the documentary made me think for the first time in a really long time about Belushi because back in the seventies, you couldn't have found a bigger Belushi fan than me that unlike Chris Farley, who definitely walked in Belushi's shadow and was this super fan who wanted to be just like Belushi Farley had no problem being very silly and sort of being the butt of the joke sometimes literally. Right. And when you look at Belushi's career, he's never the victim. He's never the Sharpie. But there was a very definite um, thought process going on about the way he played comedy and the type of characters he played. Um, it was sharp. It was smart. He never really played the buffoon. Right. Um, 
even little parts like when SNL did that sketch about the um, the Marvel superheroes having a Christmas party <laughs> and Belushi was the Hulk. It was. Are you remembering it? I am. Yeah. Um, it was a t- it was a take on the Hulk you had never seen. Right. And he was unapologetic. Um, hey, it ain't roses. Um, <laughs> it's it's a comic persona that we hadn't seen. And I don't think we've seen again. And of course, that was back when you could do a lot of TV and a lot of movies in a short period of time and actually build up a body of work where we could look at the way that you perform sort of in the same way we could say, well, Jerry Lewis did this and Woody Allen did this and, and here's what Belushi did. And it's, it's very fascinating and it's unique. It's interesting that the acolytes of Belushi, the people that people like Chris Farley or Artie Lang, the people that so idolize Belushi and want to be him, seem to only get the out of control part right. Yeah, and and Farley used to joke, uh, "Fatty fall down, everybody laugh." It's real simple. Is a famous quote from Farley, but Belushi never did that. Right. In fact, the only time I remember him falling down is when he did those famous editorials on the SNL News <laughs> that would end with him in a flurry of anger and apoplexy, just throwing himself off the set because he had worked himself into such a lather. I mean, that's that's not fatty fall down. He fell down as Joe Cocker, too, but again, it wasn't about uh, fatty fall down. And, and that was, and he also did that in the off-Broadway show Lemmings, so that he could do that amazing stunt, and I saw it again in the Belushi documentary, where he would arch his back right. and roll back and forth on his belly. <laughs> Most fat people can't do that because their belly is soft and squishy, like a bag of flour. When you watch him do it, it's like watching an Olympic athlete do physical <laughs> comedy. It's like, how is he doing that? He's fat. <sighs> Belushi's not good. The documentary is not good. No. Um, I, I still miss John. My next overrated pick is another high-profile Netflix movie that I was looking forward to, and that is Ben Wheatley's remake of Rebecca. Starring Lily James and Army Hammer. I have said this online. I've probably said it on the podcast. I have yet to really love a Ben Wheatley movie, and yet I look forward to each new one. And the prospect of him remaking a Hitchcock film was very intriguing to me. I had only seen Rebecca for the first time maybe two years ago, so it's still pretty fresh in my memory. Um, and it's, is that a big favorite of Erica's, or is that Wuthering Heights? That's Wuthering Heights. Okay. Uh, I don't think I liked any of Rebecca. Um, I, I described it at the time as like, if you had a movie about two actors making a movie, Rebecca would be the movie inside the movie, like the bad star vehicle inside the movie. Yeah. I remember when you said that and the Netflix, the new Rebecca, the army hammer, Rebecca literally came out of nowhere. And I was like, what's this? and was really looking forward to seeing it until I read some reviews and talked to you. Yeah. Uh, which is why I have not yet seen it. It's bad. My next overrated picks 
I have cleverly grouped them. I have placed them all in a bushel basket because I think they are all an example of the same phenomenon. Allow me to explain. The films, which I believe are overrated, and that some of you who really like them should wait a year or two <laughs> and then return to them and see if I wasn't right, because none of us are seeing very clearly this year, are Happiest Season, King of Staten Island, UB Halloween, Palm Springs, and Bill and Ted Face the Music. These films are very pleasant. Some of them are funnier than others. None of them are great. But because of our circumstances this year, we were very hungry for things like Happiest Season. And I'm not trying to pee on Happiest Season. There, is ple there are pleasures to be found in Happiest Season, especially in some of the supporting performances. But I have become the king of farce. And when farce is done poorly, it angers me. And when the trap is sprung in Happiest Season, when the truth becomes known, it is the weirdest, most sour <laughs> example. I would say it was the worst, but of course Adam Sandler clinched that and just go with it by having the trap being sprung off camera. And then later two people talk about it in a bar. I am very happy that um, LGBTQ people are getting more representation in movies. I think it's wonderful. In fact, it's the reason I was looking forward to it. Oh, this is going to be the standard romantic farce plot, only it's with a gay couple. Give it to me. And the film is of two minds. It desperately wants to be a light holiday offering, but it's trying to be true to the realities of LGBTQ, and, and I think those two things are at odds. So Kristen Stewart winds up in the closet, and Mary Steenburgen says, what are you doing in the closet? And I guess we laugh. But then the film does nothing with that. A better film would have had Mary Steenburgen continually stumbling upon things that can't be explained, and then Kristen Stewart and the other actress have to explain them to her. So it would be funny. When it is revealed that they are actually a couple, it's immediately followed by another revelation that's awful and mean-spirited, and then Victor Garber walks away because he has to think about it. <laughs> and it's odd because Victor Garber was an interesting choice for the father because Victor Garber has a certain, what's the word I'm looking for, that we, we have an amount of affection for him, and I'm not really sure if he's ever played a straight villain. But clearly this film is calling out for a different reaction from the parents than your father's very upset and he needs to think about it for a couple days. Mm -hmm. um, I thought the social aspect of the film was hampering its ability to be a romantic comedy. Sure. It's fine if it gave people happiness at the holiday season. That's fine. I think you and I agree about King of Staten Island, but I think this is true 
in one way or another of all five of these films that the way people react to them is very much based on the quarantine to a lesser or greater extent. Yeah, that's very possible. I mean, I'm sure that's true for me of at least Bill and Ted Face the Music, which I liked but didn't love. But by the time we get to the end, it's sort of very upbeat and positive and was like, hey, this is how I want to feel right now because I've been lacking this feeling. And that's important. Plus, I thought you liked Bill and Ted Face the Music a lot more than I guess you did. I thought you loved it. Oh, no. Okay. No. If you're looking for the superior Alex Winter film this year, (laughs) he made a documentary about Zappa that I'm going to be talking about next week. Oh, very nice. I need to try to watch it before next week. I'm not suggesting that all five of these films are of exactly like quality. I'm saying the reaction to them, I cannot understand. And I think the reaction to them comes from the same place. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. You know, it's, it's a hard thing would, to try I to. Agree, I would agree that Palm Springs is a better film than Hubie Halloween. Right. That's good. But I think in two years, if our listeners go back and rewatch Happiest Season, King of Staten Island, Hubie Halloween, Palm Springs, and Bill and Ted Face the Music, I think they'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think Hubie Halloween is probably the 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 most the best example of what you're talking about because yes. it was pleasant enough and had some great Halloween atmosphere. And so our peers were like, yay, Hubie Halloween, including me, you know, um, because Halloween was altered this year. Right. And it was a little taste of old Halloween. Right. Uh, and it was, it was pleasant enough, but yeah, I don't know that anybody's talking it up as a great movie. You know, it's a hard thing to try to, wrap your head around why somebody else likes something. Yes. Um, but I, but, but that's how much I love our listeners. I'm actually going to attempt <laughs> right. to explain to them why. Um, and I will say this cause you be Halloween is like in 10 years, I've reviewed maybe three new releases. Very few. Yeah. For like seven years. The only new release I ever reviewed was boyhood. Because um, I loved it so much. But I did review Hubie Halloween, and I will say this. When they throw stuff at him, I thought that was really, really funny. (laughs) And something I've never seen before. Almost like old school Adam Sandler when um, Chubbs the Alligator and Lincoln can appear on the horizon. Right, right. And you realize you're dealing with genius. That's the Adam Sandler that I miss. Yeah. The non sequitur Adam Sandler. Yes. Um, my last overrated pick, again, not because I've seen people fall all over themselves loving this movie, but just because I was looking forward to it. It's another Netflix high-profile release, this time from writer-director Aaron Sorkin, and that is Trial of the Chicago 7, a movie that just left me cold in basically every single way. Um... And some of that may be, I know, because I had this conversation with my mom, like, I wasn't there for it, so maybe that's why it uh, left me cold, because she was saying, well, I remember this, so it was like going into a time machine and being part of this again. Um, 
not as guilty of as much Sorkinism as I was worried about, but certainly enough Sorkinism in there. Yeah, when you saw that he had made it, you were like, oh, well, I see the appeal right. of this subject matter. <laughs> I, will, I will say, though, um, I liked it a lot more than you did. All right. And I was six when it was actually okay. happening. Right. Um, and I think I think your mother's on to something in that the subject matter has a lot to do with it because I know fundamental to how much I liked it was the fact that you're sitting there saying this actually happened. Right. Right. In an American courtroom, someone was bound and shackled. Right. And his crime was asking for representation. He was asking for his lawyer. Right. And they handcuffed him to a chair and and gagged him. And I guess I just feel like there's a better movie to be made about some of this stuff that this wasn't that this wasn't it. Okay, but that's me. I can see that. Um but This is also subjective. No, no, no. I I agree and and it what you're saying is kind of making me think about the film in a different way. Um Although in the spirit of Mank, Sasha Baron Cohen is too old to play Jerry Rubin, um, I thought he did a really good job. He's not Jerry Rubin, right? Oh, I'm sorry, Abby Hoffman. Yeah, <laughs> I get I get those two confused because they're kind of a a pair of merry pranksters throughout right. the film. Um, on some streaming service, I think it's I think it's Amazon. They resurrected this very strange made-for-TV version of the same events um, that was on in the 80s that features a lot of news footage and a lot of famous actors, just like the new version. Uh, Peter Boyle plays uh, Dave Dellinger. And, um, wow, it's really wild and weird. I think it might be by Jeremy Kagan, but don't quote me. Okay. We watched it one night, and if anything, it will make you see that Fincher's version is a masterpiece. Aaron Sorkin's version. Com- I'm sorry. Um, Aaron Sorkin's version is a masterpiece compared to this earlier version. Um, yeah, this I movie think- is called Conspiracy, the Trial of the Chicago 8. Right, which even there, the two films are at odds. Because <laughs> How many people? The, the Sorkin version. Right says seven because uh bobby seal wasn't you know because there was all that right nonsense with um him not being represented in any case um i think i may have fallen prey to the fact that i find the subject matter so interesting i'm just really glad they made a movie about it all right and i and i'm i'm with you that i find the subject matter interesting i just felt like this wasn't the movie to be made about it but again this is all completely subjective and we can only talk about our own reactions to these things which is why overrated is the wrong term it, it again falls comes down to i didn't get it i don't i don't get it um also i thought it had one of the best lines of the year when sasha baron cohen as abby hoffman pauses and this must be in the official court record because the same line is in the other earlier conspiracy film. Um, Hoffman says, 
I guess I just realized it's the first time I've ever been arrested for something I thought. Yeah. Which um, has tremendous resonance. In any case, um, are we ready for ugly? Yeah. Is that uh, did we do all your overrated picks? Yes. Although okay. in the spirit of underrated, I do have a bonus overrated pick although it wasn't overrated because no one talked about this movie at all it was released and disappeared um the trip to greece oh yeah the new rob um bryden uh, uh, steve coogan film is just they're out of material they're running on fumes <laughs> it's just i guess if you like the first one but i think everyone after the first one was a step down. I think the first one is amazing, maybe because it was a TV series that they edited down. So they were able to like pick just the good stuff. Right. But I'm such a fan of, um, the first trip film with them, with the two of them. And the trip to Greece is just painful, Hmm. which is why no one saw it and no one talked about it. And so I guess it's not overrated. It's a new category. Invisible. (laughs) Uh, let's get to ugly then. I'll do my one ugly pick, which we already teased earlier in the episode. I didn't because I either avoided them or because I liked a lot of stuff that I saw this year. I didn't see very many movies that I thought that was really bad. Even my overrated picks like Mank. I didn't like Mank, but I recognized some some amount of talent went into making it. So I can't just say, well, that was a terrible movie. Uh not the case with the movie Scoob, which is the <laughs> probably the worst movie I can think of that I saw this year, just because and Adam Thaz's review, who Adam doesn't usually write reviews for the site, but he was so moved to review Scoob that he said, Hey, can I please write something about that? Uh it was one of my favorite reviews that we had on the site this year because he so gets to the heart yes, of was. what's wrong with that movie. Uh, which is that it's not Scooby-Doo, that Scooby-Doo has a very simple formula. Things are not as scary as they appear to be, kids. It's not hard. It's not hard. Right. And this movie just doesn't do any of that and gets into a whole weird superhero plot. I watched it with our kids. and It's a parade of IP they were trying to resurrect. Oh, gosh. And our kids liked it, and so I guess but uh, there's some merit there, <laughs> but... Uh, I thought it was probably the worst movie I saw this year. I just thought it was really, really terrible. And again, the first time I saw the trailer, it really made it look like Scooby-Doo the early years. Like, here they are as kids, where they get to know each other and form the mystery gang. And I thought, right. sure. I remember I remember seeing the trailer. There's a movie there. You know, I'm not super interested in young Scooby-Doo, but, like, there's a movie there. And, boy, that's not the movie. That's maybe the first ten minutes of the movie, and then it goes into this nonsense with various Hanna-Barbera IP, as you point out, uh, and the voice of Mark Wahlberg. Um, I agree that Adam's review is one of the best things we published slash posted this year. And, again, in my case, it was because his review saved me $185. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is your ugly, sir? Okay, I have no desire to uh, wear out my welcome, so let's make this short. But <laughs> the following films were just so bad. 
in so many different ways, they just left me shaking my head. The first is the new Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which uh, defines one of my son's favorite expressions, that this film is up its own ass. And I guess some people liked it. Um, our own Rosalie Lewis was watching it the other day and tweeting about it as it went on. And I think she got about halfway through before she shut it off. And that's 45 minutes of her life that she will get back. <laughs> I came very close to including that as part of my overrated because, again, it falls into that same category, which is a Netflix movie from a filmmaker I like that I was excited to see that I didn't get. So really I could add it to Mank and Trial of the Chicago 7 and Rebecca in terms of it meets all these different criteria and yet I wasn't crazy about it. Um, and I am perfectly happy to put it in a box labeled I don't get it. The second one is um, at the beginning of the pandemic quarantine, we were hungry for entertainment and my wife and I discovered that the following film is available at an inflated price on pay-per-view. But what the hell? Let's throw the dice. On second thought, let's not. When the film is You Should Leave, the Kevin Bacon horror film. Um, that's, that's not what it's called, is it? What's it called? I believe it's called You Should Leave. I don't think that's what it's called. Hold on. <laughs> because I can't think of the title right now. You should get out of here? Uh, hold you on. You should not pay $20 for Amanda this? Seyfried, right? And it's... Yes. You should not pass go. You should not collect $200. It's You Should Have Left. Sorry. I'm sorry. You Should Have you Left. You Should Have Left. David Kep, who I like. Um, It's reasonably interesting for the first half hour, but... You know, like Stephen King says, eventually you have to turn your cards over, and this film has nothing. Mm. And then Doolittle. <laughs> which I knew was going to make this list, because you're the only person who saw it in I a also, theater. Which I, yes, wow, talk about wasting, I think I saw four movies in a movie theater. before they 25% all of those movies were oh Doolittle. Oh my god, I'm a fool. Um... <laughs> Again, what I found interesting about Doolittle, because this is another new release I actually reviewed, is there are tantalizing glimpses of what it started out to be and maybe what Robert Downey Jr. signed on for. But as you have said many times, there's all these different color script pages and no one could figure out what they wanted it to be. I think it was originally a much smarter film that gave kids a lot more credit for wanting something like Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. And then someone saw it and said, no, we need a lot of one-liners from the animals and we need more fart jokes. <laughs> and also more cuteness. I think the original was not cute. I think they were trying to not be a parade of cuteness and it's what they turn the film into is at odds with what the film originally was. And then not that I mean to open this can of worms and I'm glad that if you enjoyed it, um, but wonder woman 84 oh. is a mess. Throwing down. And, and I wanted to derive pleasure from it, 
but I had a real big problem with every aspect of the film. Like Prometheus and Interstellar, the more you start thinking about it, the more it falls apart in your hands. Um, the special effects are demonstrably, objectively bad. <laughs> that in the universe of Wonder Woman, the laws of physics act very, very differently down to gravity. Yeah, It's very odd, cartoony-looking stuff. Uh, we have a main plot that was clearly intended to be the subplot, and the main plot that became a subplot um, my wife and I said it's as if Pedro Pascal sh showed up on the set and everyone's, we like working with this guy. Let's do more with him. Um, just, just mediocre. Uh, my theory about Wonder Woman 84 is that Patty Jenkins somehow managed to make Superman 2 and 3 all at the same time. That I can see, and there are certain things that she's doing in Wonder Woman 84 that I really applaud. Um, the fact that in a big-budget studio blockbuster, attention is paid to how some women are treated in real life and how that shit's got to stop. All the stuff about harassment right? I actually really liked, but... As better minds than I have pointed out, it gets very muddled when she's kicking the shit out of a harasser and she almost kills him, so that makes her the bad guy. It's very strange. <laughs> it's and, a mess. And, right. Wonder Woman is very, very nice to uh, Miranda Cheetah or whatever her name is. <laughs> her name is Miranda Cheetah. Uh and it never is clear to me why the Christian Wig character turns on Wonder Woman because Wonder Woman treats her nicely. And then... Well, she doesn't want to... Uh, she wants to be the, the, the best, right? She doesn't want to renounce her wish. She wants to be the alpha predator. Apex um, predator. The apex predator. There you go. And then... <laughs> her a cheetah. Miranda someone, Cheetah. They should someone, have known. They should have known she would become a cheetah with that name. Someone on Twitter who is the ultimate social justice warrior oh boy. starts a post about how the peculiar way they bring Chris back, which, because it's a comic book movie, they could have done in any number of ways. Right. The, the Twitter uh, social justice warrior is suggesting that the way Chris Pine is brought back amounts to rape. Oh, all right. Because it involves using someone's body against their will, and then he shows up at the end. It's just, it's a mess. And I, Chris Pine didn't need to be in the movie at all. Right. I turned to Wonder Woman to salvage my Christmas. Yeah. The post office lost my son's gifts. So we not only had our first ever Zoom Christmas... It was like something out of Dickens, if Dickens were alive today. <laughs> we're having a Zoom Christmas where we're showing our son pictures of his gifts. Here's what you would have gotten. And I turn to Wonder Woman as I blow on the coal of the heart <laughs> to rescue my Christmas day. 
and Wonder Woman was not up to the task. No. No, it's a, it's a big old mess. Okay, thank you, because as people began to weigh in, and wow, talk about a phenomenal statistic. One out of every four HBO Max subscribers watched it on Christmas Day. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing to me. That means with so many people watching it, people were weighing in on it um, on social media, and I was pleased that there was a range of opinions. Let's say that. I was pleased that there was a range of opinions, even opinions that weren't mine. Yeah. Any other uglies? No, just four. And as we were talking before we started the the magic uh, Skype machine, this was an unusual year, but as people discover who listen to the podcast next week, um, it was a year with many pleasures, and, and next week we'll be talking about those. Yeah, I look forward to talking about uh, some of our favorite movies because i always it was not a year devoid of joy it was not a year devoid of joy just keep saying that over and over (laughs) it was not a year devoid of joy if you say it enough you might start convincing yourself it was not a year devoid of joy well what's interesting and this will probably come up on the show next week but two of my 10 that i have so far i haven't solidified my list yet but two of my 10 were movies that I saw in a theater. And yeah, I, I probably only saw four movies in a theater, so 50% of them ended up on my top 10 list is the fact that I saw them in a theater contributing to how much I liked them. And that's true of my list, too, and I think that's partially what's going on. But because I've got a very good guess what those two films are, yeah, because... I believe they're on my list too. Okay. It's not a hundred percent that we saw them in a theater. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're demonstrably objectively great films. I watched both again at home and liked them as much or better. Oh. I have not yet watched either one again. Okay. Because I'm not going to chase that dragon. Yeah. Plus I have to watch the Belushi documentary again. <laughs> Well, thanks for doing this. This is always a really, really fun show to do. I always like our end-of-the-year stuff. No problem. Happy holidays, folks, and happy new year, and uh, next week we'll talk about the good one. Yay! Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.